0: Praise God for the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, Lord, as our brother is going to be coming forth to present your holy word, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would speak through him, that you would put him on fire, put a desire to explode your word into our hearts and into our minds, Lord. May everything that comes forth from his lips be of you. Give him the courage, give him the strength, give him the authority and the accuracy. Give him humility, Lord, reverence and zeal to present your holy message, Lord. And may our hearts be filled with your glory and your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Okay. Can you turn me on here, Michael? Okay, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're concentrating this morning on verses 8 to 11. And before I do the reading, I just want to uh, remind you, last week we spoke about expository preaching. And what is that? Expository preaching is going through a book of the Bible... Verse after verse after verse and how important it is to have that linkage of one verse to the next verse to the next verse to all of the verses and how they all together form a unity. Now in the Bible you'll find books that are like the epistles, like this epistle, Galatians, Ephesians and so on, how expository preaching or expository reading uh, is, is really su- suited for, for that kind of thing. That genre of literature. When we're we're doing the book of Proverbs or the book of Psalms, you know, you have different subjects that are not necessarily unified or connected like they would be in an epistle. So when Paul's writing an epistle to a particular church... And that's why pastors often like to, in pulpit people, like to preach books like the epistles of the Bible because there's a certain harmony in the book, there's a certain theme in the book that has an impact and there's a lot, a lot of chemical, if, if I can put it that way, a chemistry of connection of the verses to one another that, that helps us to understand the meaning that the, the author is trying to convey. So I would encourage you not to just appreciate expository preaching, but to think of expository reading. When you read your Bible, try to read it, particularly the New Testament and particularly the epistles. Try to read it expositorily. Try to see how the verses connect with one another. What is the theme that the author is trying to convey in this section, how it relates to the next section, the section before, and I'm going to tell you, the Bible's going to be very enriching to you. When I was first saved, um, the church that I was attending, um, the brother that was uh, doing the midweek teaching was teaching on the book of Romans. He was just, just starting it. And he told me that in preparation for preaching or for teaching out of the book of, of, of um, Romans, that he read every day for one month the book of Romans. And I have to take my hat off to that kind of diligence. You read the book of Romans once in a week or a month. You're doing good for some people. Uh, and of course, he was retired at that point. And he had time, but I have to give him a lot of credit. Uh, he did not want to be erring in his understanding of the book try something simple like I've done this myself I think I did this for a month I read First John there's five short chapters which you could read through if you weren't in a, if you weren't in a rush you could probably read it and, and get something out of it in, in maybe a half an hour um, if you rush through it you could probably do it in 15 minutes if you really wanted to meditate through it, it'd probably take you an hour and a half or so. But anyway, I, I did that for a month, and I'm telling you, every time I read the book, it seemed like something new, something fresh was coming out of it. It's sort of like wringing a, a, a sponge, you know? And the more you squeeze it, the more you squeeze it, the more you get out of it. And that's how the Bible can beat to you. So I want to challenge us all, and even ask you the question, how do you read the Bible? And I'm going to suggest there are three ways that people read the Bible, and you're probably in one of these three categories. And maybe you cross categories, possibly, uh, depending on your reading habits. Some people just say, oh, okay, this is my time to read the Bible, and they'll just open it up, and kind of wherever the, the page falls is where they're going to read. Or I think I'll read uh, maybe... Ephesians 1 today, and they sort of skip around and just pick chapters from, from day to day. The second kind of reader would be somebody who um, who just reads the Bible uh, in a very unordered way, might read uh, a book of the New Testament here, a book of the Old Testament there, a book here, a book there, and it's sort of like all over the place. And then the third kind of reader, what I, what I would call would be a systematic reader, is someone that has chosen to approach the Bible uh, for personal benefit, of course, in a systematic way. That could be by way of a daily reading through a portion of, say, the Old Testament uh, or the New Testament. And you, you have a strategy, in other words, or a technique in which you're going through your Bible. So think about... how you approach reading the Word and how you can get the most out of it. Because that's what it's intended for. Man can't live by bread alone, but how? By every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So the Lord Jesus Himself tells us that we are profiting when we're reading the Bible like we're eating, we're ingesting something that's providing a spiritual nourishment to our inner being. So if you would like some help on that, I, I wrote something called How to Start Reading the Bible. Some of you probably are long-time readers of the Bible, so this might not be the exact kind of thing that you want, but I do think it's something that we need to kind of evaluate. What approach do I take to reading the Bible? And am I, how am I getting the most out of my reading of the Scriptures? So think about that. I think that's important. Now let's go to Galatians chapter 4. And I, I as I said, we're going to concentrate on verses 8 to 11, but I need to, for the sake of what I want to say, I need to read the verses that I read last week, uh, particularly verses six, uh, 4 to 6. Chapter 4, verse 4 to 6. Because you are... Uh, hold on, uh, verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son... Made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive sonship. And because you are sons, and last week we emphasized how there's a shift from being a servant to a son. There's a magnification of the relationship from going from one to another. And because you are sons or children, God has sent, sent forth His Spirit of His Son into your hearts crying, Abba Father. He has sent forth the Spirit into your hearts so that you naturally, from that inflow of the Spirit, have an outflow of a cry to God saying, Abba Father. That is the, you could say the, the, um, the knee-jerk reaction of receiving the Spirit of God, it prompts within you a desire to want to call on God and want to call on God as your Father. And there's a cry within you that yearns for that communion and establishing and recognizing and growing that relationship of a child to the Father. I was speaking to a Mormon, uh, not a Mormon, a Muslim earlier in the week and. Mentioning to us how he uh, goes in the back room of his place of business. He has his paraphernalia, which is basically a prayer prayer um, uh, rug that they put down. And they put a thing on their head and they get flat on their face and they're praying to Allah. They're praying to Allah. You see, it's always Allah, Allah, Allah. For us, those that have received the Spirit, our cry is much more intimate. And we don't even want to assume that the God that they're crying to is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trying to draw a contrast by the way in which they would address their deity versus the way in which we address the true and living God. And for us to be able to call God Father to them would be an insult. That's lowering the standard of God and over-elevating the the relationship of you to, to Him. But that's exactly what the Bible tells us has happened. We have been elevated to sonship. He brought us up out of a horrible pit and He put a new song in our mouth and that praise to the God that brought us up is Abba Father, we adore Thee. Okay, now we're going to read verse 7. Wherefore thou art not a... You are no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And now our verses for this morning. Formerly, then, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? Observe days and months and seasons and years? I am afraid of you. I may have labored over you in vain. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. As I said, it's important that I have read verses 4 to 6 because I want to emphasize something that I wasn't able to get to last week when it it tells us the purpose of Jesus' incarnation was so that He would redeem us in order for us to be redeemed Christ had to become a person, a human being so that in a body of a human being, He then had the capacity to be able to die and Jesus was Imperative about the necessity to die. Except the grain of wheat falls into the ground, it would abide alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Jesus didn't come and couldn't just come to be a teacher. Like, like, like the Muhammad's of the world, or the Buddhas of the world, or the philosophers of the world, they may teach you a way of life. And it may, and it may be somewhat helpful to you. But Jesus didn't come to merely teach the right way. He came to die in our room instead. For this cause, the Son of Man has come into the world. He describes himself that I, and if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. So Jesus' intent was to die. For what purpose? To redeem us, to purchase us, and to free us from enslavement. That's what verse 7 indicates, that we were servants who were enslaved. But Jesus died, and in that redemptive act of His upon the cross, for sinners like you and I, His elect people, we have been set free. Now, in the Old Testament, we have three chapters that parallel to one another on the subject of the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were six cities that were set apart For the purpose of a manslayer. A person who had killed another person. Whether accidentally or even intentionally. Their instruction was for their own protection. The the murderer or the killer was to escape and run as fast as he could. And get to the city of refuge. Once he entered into the boundaries of that city he was protected. If the avenger of blood, which would be likely the nearest relative to the individual that was murdered, is obviously enraged over the death of their loved one, has the rights to pursue that individual, and if he catches them, can put them to death. So it's almost sort of like a running away from getting tagged, trying to beat that person to the city of refuge, And I think it wasn't the game hide and seek and when you got to the goal, the goal, is that what they call it, you you couldn't be touched after that, you made it, you were safe. Well, that's how it would be for the one who was a murderer. He could run to that city and as, as soon as he crossed the boundary line, he was safe. But he was if he was innocent I shouldn't say innocent, yeah, innocent of the crime, he was protected. But he wasn't freed. He had to remain in those confines. He had to be first evaluated, had to be judged by the elders of the city to determine whether or not this was a first degree murder or whether, it w- or, whether or not it was an accidental murder. If it was intentional, the person would be put to death. If it was accidental, the person is not freed until something had happened when the fullness of time was come god sent forth his son made of a woman to re under the law under the law to be to redeem those who were under the law the person who was in the confines of the city of refuge had to remain there until the death of the high priest isn't that interesting that somehow the death of the high priest creates a celebration of deliverance and of freedom. And if that person, at that point in time, after the high priest dies, and he therefore is at liberty to leave the city of refuge, someone who might stop and say, what are you doing out here? You're supposed to be in the city of refuge. He could very easily say, "Uh uh-uh, the high priest has died. The high priest has died. The high priest has died. I'm free. I'm free to go. I've got liberty now. This is a year of jubilation now for me. I'm excited. I'm freed up. You might say, well, how does that relate to us? Were we guilty of the death of Christ? Yes. Listen to what Peter says. We always emphasize Acts 2. is Peter's message at Pentecost. Not as much emphasis is put on Peter's little Pentecost message in chapter 3. When he says to them about how you crucified him, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has raised him from the dead. You prefer a murderer than that just one. And then he says this interesting line, I know you did this by ignorance. You did this by ignorance. You see, there is no forgiveness for presumptuous sins sins that are committed with a high hand now how could the Jews and that's who he's addressing have done it by ignorance don't confuse ignorance with innocence they're not innocent from what, was a comp, what, what they did in nailing Jesus to the tree they were the ones that said away with this man give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus For sure. But Peter says, I know you did it by ignorance. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, about the wisdom of the world. And he says, if the princes of this world knew, they knew what? If they knew that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh if they knew who this holy, just one was, he says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would not have. You know how Jesus could have proved His deity in a moment. He could have called down those angels from heaven. He could have just right there publicly have done all kinds of miracles. He could have changed his uh, Himself into a the transfigured one that He did on the Mount of Transfiguration so that no one would doubt. He could have done what He did when they said, when they were coming to capture Him, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' response was, I am. And they went backwards and fell to the ground. Jesus could have demonstrated that kind of power. He could have proven on the spot that He was divine. He was the only begotten Son of God full of grace and truth. And we beheld His glory. He could have demonstrated that, but He didn't. He veiled it. He was despised, rejected of man, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. This is the carpenter's son. Mary's his mother. Joseph his father. He's ordinary. He's like us that's alright with Jesus he will not strive nor cry neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets a bruised reed shall he not break and a smoking flax shall he not quench Jesus didn't make a big to do about himself, when he healed people he said go and tell nobody I'm not here to, to get publicity, I don't want to be heralded, when they wanted to make him a king in John 6 it said that he escaped even the devil says fall down and Worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Get behind me, Satan. You don't understand the timing of these things. So Jesus disguised, you could say, his Shekinah glory. The high priest has died. He has set us free. Redeemed us. So now that they're children, they're they're made free. You know, the hymn writer put it this way. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I have sought since Jesus came into my heart. I like life rather than hat, to tell you the truth. Floods of joy over over my soul like the sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. I have ceased from my wandering and going astray and my sins which were many are all washed away. There's light in the valley of death now for me and the gates of the city beyond I can see. Floods of joy overflow my soul like the sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. That's what happened because the high priest died. We've been redeemed, brothers and sisters. We can go out and shout, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. We can shout, thank you, Father, for giving your beloved Son on my behalf. Thank you, O God, that I can be considered now a child, a daughter, a son of the true and the living God. Thank you, Jesus, for your redemptive work upon the cross. If it wasn't for him becoming a man under the law to redeem them that were under the law, we would have forever been in a city of refuge. We would have been bound up for the rest of our life. But praise the Lord as it says in Romans 8.15, you have not received the spirit of bondage, but you have received the spirit of adoption, crying within you, Abba, Father. There it is once again. You have not received the spirit of bondage, but rather the spirit of liberty. And that's what the book of Galatians is about, to set us free. Formerly in the past, you didn't know God. Before you were converted, you didn't know God. It doesn't matter how good of a Sunday school class you grew up in, how well you were catechized by your parents. It wasn't until Christ comes into your life that you truly know God. You knew God, you know God now because of the miracle of the new birth that's taken place in your life. You've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. You know God. That, that's, quite a, that's quite a thing to say that we know God. Now by knowing God doesn't mean we, we know everything about God. Who would be so bold and brash to say I know God in that way? Of course no one could say that. He's, his, his, the knowledge of Him is inexhaustible. We could never plumb the depths of knowing God to the fullest degree. But the knowing here is a knowing of relationship. I know God like I never knew Him before. You knew about God. You had a head knowledge maybe about Him, but you didn't know Him. Like, the, like Paul says, I know whom I have believed. It's not what I believe, it's whom I have believed. And that's a difference sometimes between a real believer and a false believer. It's not what you know, it's who you know. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him for or against that day. That's the kind of peace that we have. It tells us, uh, for instance, in 2 Peter 2.19, of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. We were in bondage prior to our conversion. As we were singing earlier, He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Now, whether or not you think of yourself in the past as having been in bondage, the fact is that you were in bondage. Maybe you didn't demonstrate to the fullest the kinds of sins that others have committed, or you weren't the sinner of the worst sort, but you were a sinner. You were disobedient. You were a child of this world. And you walked according to the course of this world. But praise the Lord. The Redeemer has come. He set us free from the city of refuge because He died in our behalf. Everyone is enslaved who doesn't know God. Everyone who doesn't know God is enslaved. And the only one that knows God are the ones that it says here, but rather you are known of God. And this is, he's sort of setting the stage here for talking about why have you left the true God and you've gone after these other gods? These other gods don't know you. They can't know you. And you know, it's also telling us, as it says here, um, verse nine, but now that you have come to know God and Paul has to slip in this, these extra words for explanation or rather to be known by God, that, that's what really matters is The Lord knows you. We can say, I know the Lord, but some say that, but you can ask them the question sometimes, but does God know you? Remember Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And then he goes on to say, and I never knew you. I never knew you. So some who may make the profession of faith or the claim for Christ, but they don't have the presence of Christ in them. They're not known by him. So people can accumulate a head knowledge about God, but they may never have been known by God. Now that doesn't mean that God is un- unknowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything about everybody. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. So that's not what's really in question. The question is, does God know you like the way, for instance, you would know your child? There's a... There's a a biological connection from God's standpoint with us, there's a spiritual connection that He has with us so that it can be said, He knows me. He knows me. My name, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We have a personal relationship with the true and living God. So if we come to know God, or rather are known by God, how can you, and this is again Paul, he's sort of like... Give me a break. How is it possible that you could possibly turn your back? And that's what he says. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? What were the Galatians like before they were saved? You know, when we read the Bible, we have to remind ourselves to some degree at least, that we're reading, especially the New Testament, we're reading about things that were happening 2,000 years ago. Well, a lot has changed in 2,000 years, but a lot hasn't changed. There's differences, but there's a lot of similarities. There's common denominators that exist between the past and in the present. And just think, what would it have been like for Paul to be evangelizing? What kind of people did was he meeting in the Mediterranean world? As we compare who he met, who he engaged with. Now keep in mind, he was a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. So he had a very strict Jewish upbringing. He read the scriptures every day or had them read to him from infancy. It was all about their history. The Bible, Genesis to Malachi... And now he's got the gospel entrusted to him. Now he's got to go into the Mediterranean. Go far hence unto the Gentiles. Acts 21, the Lord says to Paul, I got to go to the Gentiles? Well, wait a minute. They're, they're not God-fearing people. They don't know the scriptures. How am I going to deal with them? But thankfully, Paul seemed to have been somewhat prepared. Because ta- when he talks about the books that he left behind, remember? And he was, wasn't he telling Timothy to bring the books that I left uh, at, uh, at Cloas Clo- Clo- uh, I forget the words he left them at uh, Troas yeah uh, in the coat that he left behind and so and, and we know that when he's quoting different places he's quoting the book of Enoch he's quoting uh, Ar- Aratus and Menenides and different ones in the book of Acts 17 so when he went to Athens he, he knew what he was going to encounter there But he saw it physically, and when he saw it, it says his spirit was stirred within him when he saw that the whole city was given to idolatry. That's Athens, for instance. Let me give you a little background about what Paul was encountering in his travels. And think about your own travels. What do we encounter as we're supposed to be witnesses, Jesus says, As You, Father, have sent me into the world. Even so I send a them, you sisters, you brothers, younger, older. We're all missionaries sent. But what do we encounter? Well, we encounter mainly American people, right? We have some foreigners. We're speaking to people that primarily, almost exclusively that we meet, speak English. Um, there are those kinds of things that we have in common. There might be neighborhood people. They might be people from the state, same state that you're from. Maybe somebody from the same school or college. So you have some of those common roots with people. But what are the kinds of people that we might be meeting? Atheists. We didn't have any atheists in the first century. And I'll explain that in a second. Everybody believes something. Now you might say, well, atheists are really, it's really a misnomer. No one's really, really an atheist. We could debate that point. That, my point is that there are those that classify themselves as atheists. They're the agnostics. We have the cults. We have other religions. We have the, we have the occult. We have the psychics. We have the NDEers. You know what those are? Those who believe in the near-death experiences. The ones who've written books that are in the top shelf about what they experienced after they die and where they went and everybody seems to have their own story. If everybody said the same thing, I'd say, boy, I wonder if the Bible's really right. But they don't have the same story, which makes you realize more that there's something behind the, this kind of movement. And, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a growing one and one that has concerned me a lot. And I've done a lot of reading and study on it, on it. And I've been tempted to want to go to the con... They have conferences all over the country of the near-death experience people who claim that they had died on the operating table. They had a cardiac arrest and they were dead for 20 minutes or whatever, whatever, and they were, had a lot of body experience. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing everything about it, but I just think a lot of that has a demonic spirit behind it that is fueling a, an attitude about don't trust the Bible. It's wonderful to die. It's, I wished I never came back. It was great to be out of my body. Can you imagine what that does to the gospel? Try to present the gospel to somebody and say, oh, you don't, you didn't experience what I experienced. I died and I went to heaven and it was beautiful. It was songs. The grass was beautiful and green. the, The water that was flowing in the brooks and everything that you can possibly imagine that would be a place of serenity. That's how they would describe it. So these are the kind of things that we encounter. Paul had things that he encountered. And I want to just show you for a minute the kinds of things that Paul in the first century and other apostles and others that lived in that time that would try to present the gospel, these would be the kind of things that they would experience. I'm quoting from one of my commentaries. And it says, The religious marketplace was extremely crowded during the Hellenistic era. The Olympian deities in their Roman equivalents still had a place in popular religion. Mighty Zeus and his consort Hera. Warlike Ares. These are all idols. These are all false gods. Erotic Aphrodite. Prophetic Apollo, The virgin warrior Athena. Artemis the huntress, Hermes, the messenger of the gods, Poseidon of the sea, Demeter of the field, Hestia of the hearth, Hades, the Roman Pluto, that's his, his name in the Roman lingo, the grim god of the underworld. Those were the kinds of gods, those were the kinds of beliefs that people held in Paul's day. Some city, like the city of Ephesus, their matriarch was the goddess Jupiter, or better known as, uh, Diana. Was it Jupiter, right? I think that was the Roman name for, for Diana. And, and they were praising Diana. All glory be to Diana. When Paul came, he's preaching about another God. When he went to Thessalonica, it says about them, the accusations were these other men that turned the world upside down, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Because see, there was such a an allegiance and a loyalty and a reverence for Caesar the emperor, that emperor worship precedence over all other competitors. And to say that Jesus is king or king of kings and lord of lords was to really minimize the efficacy and the uh, esteem that one of these emperors would get. Let me read on. Foreign cults also proliferated in Greece and Rome during the Hellenistic age. The Hellenistic age would be the age of the apostolic period, inclusive. Um, There were widespread stories of his offering help for his followers... Deliverance from shipwreck, healings, etc. Compensated for his lack of a long history. Isis and Osiris, also from Egypt, were popular objects of worship. In addition to these major deities, there remained a host of local spirits and gods that attracted veneration through the empire. Household gods, preserving hearth and home, were especially popular among the the, the Romans. Naiads were described as water nymphs associated with fountains, just as dryads were associated with trees, and nereids with the sea. Various spirits connected with the earth were thought to bring fertility to crops, as well as to be associated with death in the underworld. The terrifying goddess. Hecate became particularly prominent and was frequently invoked in magic spells. Finally, heroes from the past, most notably Hercules, Hercules, the Roman Hercules, were thought to aid people in distress and sometimes to serve as spiritual mentors. There's a lot in the atmosphere. And when Paul's saying, you have given up the true and living God... You have experienced this freedom from the redemptive work of our great high priest who died on your behalf when you were enslaved and now you're set free and you want to go back to the gods? And these, behind these gods were demonic spirits as well. I heard, I think it was either a tour guide when I was in Athens or I read a book when I was in Athens that said, when you came up to the sea coast of, of Greece, you would see from the sea all of these Gods and goddesses, uh, idols that were built all through the cities. Hundreds and hundreds of them. The one to Paul says, I saw one that said to the unknown God. Cause there were so many gods that even had a God that was called the unknown God. Him declare I unto you. Can you imagine that? He just trashed all their, their idol worship. And says, I'm going to tell you about the true God. How God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. How He raised Him from the dead. And He made Him to be the Lord of all. And He's going to judge every one of you. And it says, some believed. And some believed not. Some chose to stay with their gods. But some came to faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of lords and King of kings. So you might say, what parallel? Because as we read the Bible, we want we want to see, don't we? Uh, we have to recognize that the Bible was not written to us, but for us. All right, I'm, I'm not an, a Galatian, I'm not an Ephesian, I'm not in this city or that city. I'm not living to, to so we have to extract from the Bible things that pertain to us. Whatever was written aforetime was written for our learning. The word of the Lord endures forever. So there's expectation from a a book that has a historical setting with cultural backgrounds can have relevance for us today. Let me show you some examples here. Maybe some parallels here. This might be a little bit of a stretch, but could a real believer get infatuated with things that could draw them away from the true God because they're living in the world of imagination? Michael, can we go through these pictures? And, and you, you movie watchers, you will know these things far better than I do. Both are born leaders. Superman and Zeus both don a disguise so they can walk among the mortals. Next one. Both operate underground. Who's this? Hades equals Batman? Both get power from their riches. Hades, dark brother of Zeus, so Batman, dark counterpart of Superman. Okay. Poseidon, Aquaman. Aquaman was based primarily on Poseidon. Both have the tridents and control the seven seas. Next, Apollo equals green arrow. These two wield their bows with impeccable accuracy, both known for going against the grain from time to time. I think we have one more. Hermes, who equals flash. Flash. Hermes and Flash are both known for their speed, each able to run faster than any other. Both Flash and Hermes are prone to a bit of mischief and are as quick with a joke as they are anything else. Is that all of them, Mike? Okay. Take it for what it's worth, but is there not this world of infatuation, this imaginary world that sort of can draw a heart away towards this mystical even though it's, it's, it's just fantasy, but fantasy can be somewhat of a reality to a person who's not in the real world. Because it's something that they would like to have or see or be real, even though it is absolutely fallacious. Paul is saying, how could you have turned back to these gods? Um, it could be debated uh, as, as we read on here about the turning back seems to imply as well that they've put themselves enslaved now to observe days and months and seasons and years. Some might say, well, they went back to pagan holidays and observances that were uh, associated with paganism. That's a possibility. I don't think the scriptures can be are definitive on that, but what for, what I think we can say for sure is though Paul is saying that there is an analogy, either way, whether they went back to pagan pra- pre pre-pra- practices in paganism, pre conversion practices in paganism. Or whether they are more than likely—I think the answer is—they went back to Judaistic. They're going to; Ju- they're drawn towards Judaistic experiences and practices of days and months and seasons and years, festivals, Sabbaths, and so on and so forth. That seems to be the thrust of the Book of Galatians: that the Judaizers are in the background, trying to draw the Galatian Christians back to the to their ways. And Paul says in verse 11, I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. This is strong language. Paul's saying, apparently my work in the gospel with you has been fruitless because it was just a temporary show. And I want to show you some verses in the book of Galatians where Paul indicates his personal frustration with their turning back or their... Sort of like Lot's wife like wanting to go back. Or Israelites, when they come out of Egypt, that their hearts are drawn back to the onions and meek, uh, uh, leeks and melons, and they want to go back. Is it happening with the Galatians that they're going back? Let's look at some of these verses. The first one would be 1 verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The next one, two, four, and 5. Paul's talking about because of false brothers who secretly brought in, who slipped in to out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might, what? Bring us into bondage or slavery to whom we gave place, or I'm quoting the King James, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now I want to stop right there for a second. Get back to that one, Michael. The previous one. Paul is giving himself as an example of someone who was not enticed away. You want, you, you want to circumcise Titus? Nothing doing. Nothing doing. He's a, he's a believer, he's a Gentile, he's going to be baptized, and that's what he deserves. That's appropriate for him. So Paul is saying, when these Judaizers came in, whether they were believers that were confused... With, with Judaism or not, they were still trying to bring believers into bondage, just what the Galatians are experiencing, but he's saying we, talking about him and his, his uh, comrades in the, in the, in the ministry, we weren't, we weren't enticed, we weren't drawn back, we weren't going to give in for a minute, for a moment, because they want to bring us into bondage. And that's what he's hoping he can tell the Galatians. Don't be brought into bondage. You've been set free. Look at chapter three, verse one. Can we get that one up, Michael? Oh, foolish Galatians. Think of that, calling them foolish. Galatians. Exclamation point. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Again, he's embarrassed about their conduct. Next, Michael. This is all in Galatians now. We just read this. I'm afraid. I have, I I may have labored over you in vain. Next. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Next, you are ser- severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Fallen away from grace. Next verse, 5-7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth. Is there one more? Yeah. Ten. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. So can you see the tension here in the book of Galatians? Paul is trying to set them back on the right path because others have come in that are drawing them back. Back from God to God's. From truth to error. From the f- fulfillment to the type. From the real to the images of circumcision and so on and all of those Sabbaths and feast days that all were pointing forward. He's saying, we've arrived. We're here. Why are you going back that to that? We're, we're, we're saved by grace now. Why are you putting yourself under the law? Oh foolish Galatians, I am perplexed by you. You might know of a brother or sister that has gone back to the world, to the ways of the world. If it's a real believer, that person's a real believer, I think you can say, who has bewitched you? I am perplexed. How could you have tasted of the grapes of Eshkol? How could you have been in the promised land and enjoyed these spiritual things? And now you want to go back to the gods of this world. Those Spiritual forces that you're venerating, and that's really what it is. It's a whole, the whole thing is a spiritual battle. When you come into the field of God, it should, you've gotta stay there, brothers and sisters. We've gotta reap in Boaz's field. That's where we're gonna get nourishment. If we go in another person's field, watch out. Watch what you see, watch what you hear. It's unavoidable you're gonna see and hear things that are gonna be very distasteful. But be careful that they don't ring a bell inside of your bosom that says, hmm, that's attractive. I think I'm, I want to go to that. Be careful. And that's what I think Paul is worried about with them. I've labored in vain with you. I'm heartbroken. How could you go back? When we talk next week, we're going to talk about the heart of Paul for them and how severely concerned he was Again, about the direction that they were being pulled. Um, praise God! You're in church today. Praise God! You're a Bible reader. I take it. Praise God! You're praying to the Lord. Praise the Lord! You're enjoying Him daily. Praise God! You're as the scriptures avoid it, pass not by it, and and don't turn toward towards it. There are things that are attractive. There are the gods of this world. I don't know if you thought that there was any parallels there, but some of those kinds of forces are the kinds of things that make the ways of the world a little more appealing. You know, when the the Israelites were coming through the wilderness, they said, our soul loatheth this light bread. You'd say, what? God gifted them manna from heaven. Angel's food it's called. And you're grumping about that? It should have been more than satisfactory. Manna from heaven. Sometimes we can want more than what we have, and that's the true man from heaven, the Lord Jesus. Isn't He, and that's what Paul says in this book, you are complete in Him. You are filled with Him. You have everything that you need before God to enjoy the things of... Christianity, you know, brothers and sisters, we've got the best of the best. If we've got Christ, we can say, take the world, but give me Jesus. Because he is our fullness. The hymn writer said, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus, and thank you, O oh God, for your your saving power not only saving us from our sins, but saving us from going back to them. And Lord, we pray as any one of us, Lord, could go back. We could forfeit the things that we know that are the best and get satisfied with the things that are falsely enticing. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to enjoy the manna from heaven, that we would taste those uh, grapes of Eshkol, that we would enjoy the milk and honey of the land in Canaan, and that, Lord, we would not go into the fields where, Lord, they will really never fully satisfy. Oh, God, thank you for your precious word, for the many warnings that it gives us and the many encouragements that we have from it. Help us, Lord, to stick fast, Lord. You are are true and living God, and may we, Lord, not try to find any satisfaction outside of what, Lord, you provide by the Spirit, through your word, the fellowship of your people, as we love to worship you, Lord, and praise you, and witness for you, pray to you, and love you, and live for you. Help us, Lord, we pray, as we give you honor, glory, and praise, in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Let's close by singing in our hymnal, Be Thou My Vision.